John chapter 3, and we're in our book study here, 1 John. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, and the title of this message is Sacrifice. Like I mentioned last week, we a, a lot of these messages, John is just bringing the believers, right, to the basics, the basics of our faith, reminding us of really what it's all about. And so we're going to look at this um, subject of sacrifice and li- having sacrificial living and appreciating the sacrifice that Jesus has, has um, became a sacrifice for us. Verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother uh, in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our, hearts, uh, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. If you hearken back to a couple messages ago, I think it's important to note of what John's theme is. It's it's what a real believer looks like, what a real disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. And he lays out this litmus test that we can know, that we can kind of like a gauge, we can know where we're at with the gospel. We can know and we can look in a mirror and we can judge if we're really getting it for really understanding what the gospel is all about. And John talks about walking in the light. And I made a a comment about what that means to walk in the light is that we look at life. We look at the future through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the gospel of grace, that God so loved us that he gave everything for us. We couldn't earn our own salvation, but yet God, who is rich in mercy, gave his life for us. Jesus Christ, his own son, became the sacrifice on the cross. And so when the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ and his substitute on the cross uh, were engaged in that, were impacted with it, we look at life through the lens of that gospel. We're never the same. We look at ourselves through the lens of the gospel. 
We look at others through the lens of the gospel, and we look at God through the lens of the gospel. That's what this is all about. How we relate to God the Father. We can't relate to him and be in relationship with him in the right way, in the right fashion, until we know the gospel. That's why it's so important to understand the implications and never stop. It's like a drill that just goes deeper and deeper into God's heart is in the gospel. We can't really relate with one another because uh, without the gospel in the right way, we can't truly love or ourselves. If we take ourselves too seriously, then we're, you know, we go through life uh, with difficulties because our happiness and our joy is hinged upon how if people accept us or like us that we, t- we can take. We c- and, and so what the gospel does, it helps us look at ourselves through that lens and, 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 and understand uh, that we're not that important, that what's really important is God's love for us. And so when we know that acceptance of God and that approval of him, everything changes. And so that's the theme. That's the context in which John is writing these letters, okay? And so as a Christian, um, our, you know, the, to the truth and, and love in the gospel, we see three things. We see the requirement that we should love. Notice that. We see the requirement. We see the response. And ultimately, we see the reality. And I'll explain what those mean. Look at verse 11. For this is the message. This is it. He's laying it out. This is the message of the gospel played out. That we should what? Love one another. Love is the byproduct of knowing the gospel and abiding in the gospel. And we talked about this in great detail. Of abiding is simply being connected to, remaining in Jesus Christ. And the same life that is in Christ comes to us and through us. We read in Galatians chapter 5.22, it describes that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then it gives a whole list of what that love looks like. It looks, it's gentleness, it's kindness, it's long-suffering, it's, that, that's what love looks like. And so, love is the byproduct of knowing the gospel. So we see here a requirement. What's the requirement? That we should love. And, he's, and, he, and he gives a contrast here in verses uh, 12 through 15 to that message. He's saying that we should love one another in contrast, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And we see right there in Genesis chapter 4, we see the first murder on planet Earth. And it was a result of sin. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. And it's interesting to note that they were bringing their offerings to the Lord. And I, sometimes when I speak at uh, worship leader conferences, I, I say, you know, you know the first murder happened at a worship service, right? And it's funny, you get uh, musicians in there, you know, they all have their ideas. So, you know, <laughs> don't kill the guitar player, right? So, but the first murder, and, and what murder is, we get a description, I mean, it's not, he goes into detail, John does, and this is important. He goes into detail with what a murderous heart is. And what a murderous heart is, is a hateful heart. We could just say that hate is the lack of love. And so we could sit in this room and go, wait a second, I'm not a murderer. You know, I'm a good, upright, upstanding person. I mean, but, but Jesus said, To hate someone in your heart 
is to murder them in your heart. Even though you may not do it physically, we've already the, broken the law already. And so there's a contrast set up. If we're not loving, we are seeing people as commodities. We're indifferent to people. We don't really care about others and their needs. Life is all about me and making it through this life. And if someone stands in the way of my happiness, that's a hateful heart. See, the spirit, the spirit behind a murderer's heart is you want that person removed from your existence, from your presence. You want them out of the way so you can live a happy life. And that was Cain. That was Cain, and it's the antithesis of not abiding in Christ. And what, what John is saying here is that we can know how we view people, how we treat people, how we look to people, how we serve people is in direct correlation to our understanding of the gospel. So th this is the requirement to love. It was a consequence, right? When it, when it says here in, in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Here's the children. <laughs> and they're not, you know, pretty, pretty bad start with the first family getting going here. But let's talk about these two. Cain murdered Abel. Cain was a farmer. Cain tilled the soil. He, he grew crops. So when he came to the altar to bring his sacrifices, he brought these fruits and these vegetables. And the story goes that God didn't accept and you, the, this sacrifice. Why didn't he accept it? You might think, well, what's God's deal? What's God's problem? Why didn't he accept? This is the fruit of this guy's hand. But there's a real reason in the, the, the entire narrative of the gospel, in connection with the gospel, why God didn't accept this offering, this sacrifice from Cain. Abel was the keeper of the sheep. And when he brought his sacrifice, he killed the lamb. He killed a lamb and brought this lamb to God in worship and as a sacrifice. And it gives us a profound understanding of how people relate to God. The right way to relate to God and the wrong way to relate to God. This whole story speaks of that. And why God didn't accept the, the fruit and the vegetables from Cain is because he's, he, he's thinking in his mind, look at this work that I've done. I, he's, in a sense, it's based on his works. He's proud of what he's brought. He's bringing it to God, but he's trying to relate to God with the sweat of his own brow, with his own works. And we know that that's not what it means to be a Christian. We're saved by faith alone, through the grace of God. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that uh, God's grace is a gift it's not of ourselves. We didn't earn it. It's a gift of God, and we receive it by faith. We can't work for it. People try and work for it, but the problem with working for your salvation is somehow deep inside, whether it's in your prayers, your expectations, God owes you something. I've done this and that, and I've been consistent, and so God, you better come through for me. But what God wants us to do is understand his grace. Grace means unmerited favor. And that's exactly how God came to us through his own son.
And so when we look at Cain and Abel and this whole story, Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. It says that in Hebrews 11.4. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Cain was offering his sacrifice with the flesh. In his own efforts, his human efforts and his own works. It wasn't out of faith. It was out of duty. And God rejects that. If we try and polish up just a nice squeaky clean life and say, God, look how good I did. I offer you my life. We sing that song and say, I've worked really hard. No matter how good you are, our righteousness falls miserably short of the perfection of God. And God doesn't accept that. He's saying, well, I've worked so hard being good, being moral. God says, you're so far off. Sure, you might be better than the other guy down the street. You might have your act together more than this person, you know, morally or what have you. But you're still miserably, fall miserably short. And the only way that we come to God and know the gospel and are impacted by the gospel is when we respond in faith. It's a receiving. It's what it is. You receive what's already been done for you through Jesus Christ, and you receive it by faith, and you understand that you have done nothing to earn that. That's what melts our hearts. And until that happens, we will never truly love people. We'll never truly appreciate God. See, by faith, Abel did what he was supposed to do, but by works, Cain did what he thought was better. Abel brought the firstborn sheep, which was a sacrifice for sin. And throughout the scriptures, this is how God connects with man. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, right? Fruit of the loom, fig leaves, and they, uh, God killed the animal. So even at the beginning, it was God's heart to cover his people, but it was through sacrifice. It was through the shedding of blood. And of course, as we look at that and follow that, and even as the children of Israel would bring sacrifices to the temple and to the tabernacle and make sacrifices because blood has to be shed. Wrong has been committed and someone's got to pay. There has to be a payment. And so you follow that thread of redemption throughout the Old Testament, but it's all pointing up to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And because Jesus Christ became the sacrifice for all sin, for every sin that every person has ever committed in the history of the world, past, present, and future, he embodied because he's the only perfect man. He was the only one that was sinless, and he took his sinless record, his perfect record, and he, he offered it up on the cross. And he took my horrible record, and he nailed it to the cross. See, you can't work for that. You can't labor for the grace of God. You just have to receive it. You can't offer something, the fruit of your labor, the fruit of the ground. See, the whole story is about human effort versus faith, and that's the gospel. And so many people go th through life pumping up their own competence and their own ego before God. But in reality, we need to get in touch with the grace of God. So that's, that's the, um, the requirement, right, that we read here. And then we see a response, a life living in response to the gospel. Because this sacrifice, it points to the cross, like I mentioned, works versus sacrifice. And we forget that a broken, desperate heart is the right heart. 
It's the heart that God, in that, in that psalm that we read this morning, what God desires is a broken heart, a contrite heart, someone who knows they need help. That's what God loves. That's what God accepts. Someone who says, look, I can't do it alone. I, I can't make it. I, I have nothing to offer to God. And your heart's broken. And it's contrite. And you desperately need the grace of God. When it comes to the gospel, there's good news and bad news. There has to be good, bad news before there's good news. You can't just have the good news because it's not that good to you. It might sound, oh, God loves me. That's cool. But do you realize how desperately wicked every single one of us are compared to God, compared to the brilliance of his holiness? And we're going to see him. John says that when we see him as he is, we're going to be like him. But the bad news is that we fall miserably short. And if we really, the, the bad news comes to us and we go, oh, no, I need help. I need a doctor. I need prescription. And so the good news is that much sweeter. You have to have the bad news before you have the good news. I can't save myself. Everything is not all right. I need help. And when our heart is right, we have a greater dependence upon God. And when our heart is not right, we have a greater dependence upon ourselves. That was Cain. It was self-dependence. Where Abel, he understood the sacrifice needed to be made. Because of sin, our connection with God is based on sacrifice. Here in Genesis 4 is one lamb for a man, Abel. Later at the Passover, it will be one lamb for a family, but still a sacrifice. Then at the, the Day of Atonement, it was one lamb for a nation. And then finally with Jesus, there was one lamb who takes away the sins of the entire world. We have all sinned, and someone or something must pay. Wrong has been done. I think of the story of Ravi Zacharias, and I, I shared this a couple years ago, but it, it's fitting in, on this subject because his kids were just disobedient, and he disciplined them and grounded them and took away privileges, but they kept going at each other, and it just broke his heart. And he had tried everything to get his son and his daughter to get along. And through months and months of trying every form of discipline, they still were, were not getting it. And one day, he took off his belt and he handed it to his kids and he told his kids that he wanted them to, to basically give him a whooping. And he said, look, wrong has been done. You have sinned. Wrong has been done. Someone needs to pay. And so he, it got across to them, and he tells a story about his daughter and his son that were weeping and crying, and Dad, we're so sorry. And that's the heart of God. Wrong has been done, but someone has to pay. But God says, I've paid. We've committed the sin. We've done wrong. But yet Jesus took the brunt of our, of the penalty and the wrath and the anger of God upon himself. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's a well-known rabbinic maxim that, that a Jew would understand. There's no forgiveness without a price being paid. So that's consistent with all of Scripture. So John, what's he saying? When we know the gospel, we love each other. We love each other with an undefiled love. And to not know the gospel, 
or to be relating to God in your own efforts, human effort, in your own works, people are pawns to us. We judge people by ourselves. We, we, we determine their righteousness because we think maybe in our book, what, what does it say in Isaiah? They compared themselves among themselves and they felt good about themselves. If they could live an externally holy life, and you looked a little more holy than the next guy, then you felt good about yourself. It's just pride. It just puffs up yourself so that, but when we, if we, and, and so God loves us, and, and the, the doom is to carry that perspective into heaven when we're all going to see. Now this is incredibly encouraging to me <laughs> because I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need the gospel. I am lost without the gospel. And what should happen? It's a trajectory that it sets us on. Well, we start loving people like God loves people. The key to loving others is to understand your desperate need for the forgiveness of sins. Your desperate need for what's provided through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the substitute for God's wrath. He hates sin. But he loves the sinner. So if God hates sin and he's going to condemn sin, but he loves the sinner, how is he going to pull that off? How is he going to do it? Jesus, who committed no sin, he became the substitute on the cross. You know, it's interesting that after Cain killed Abel, he, God came after Cain. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me, from the ground. Interesting. God is saying that the blood of Abel was speaking. It had a voice. And what was the voice? Blood must, must, must be shed. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, we read in, in Leviticus. It's life. The Bible says that our life is in our blood. Blood is symbolic of the, the life we have, the, the lungs that take in oxygen and fuel our, our bloodstream and keeps us alive. It's, it's, it speaks of our, our very life, who we are as people. And so life is in the blood. And, you know, people respond differently to blood. <laughs> you know, some people, they, if you see a cut, you, you pass out. Or if you're a hunter, you know, I don't know how some of you guys go up in there for 10 days. I mean, it's impressive. Go, you go up there, you, you, you smell like a whatever, and you, you put on this scent and you live with a bunch of guys 10 days. And then, see, I think it might be fun to go, I mean, it sounds kind of fun to like actually shoot something, you know. But what do you do after that? You got to take that thing down out of the mountain. You got to cut it up, right? No, thank you. I like Safeway, okay? I'll let them do it. But people respond differently to blood. But the, the sacrificial system is meant to be messy because sin is messy. It, it was meant... when. You know, when the, when the Leviticus, Levitical priests were offering sacrifices to the Lord in the temple, they would be covered in blood from head to toe as they would sacrifice at Passover. Some 250,000 lambs were sacrificed at the temple. 
And you go, that's gross, that's disgusting. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be sickening. It's supposed to be sad. It's supposed to be bloody. It's supposed to, because that's our sin. See, Cain thought different. And many people make up how they want to approach God. They make up their own rules because God's way is too hard. It's too exclusive. It's too narrow. Because the gospel says there's only one solution, and his name is Jesus Christ. So God didn't accept his offering. And we read there that he went into a depression, and his depression led to the hatred in his own heart. And he slew Abel because he hated God. And he hated the bar that was set by God. And when we hate the standard, we want to remove it. The standard's too high. It's meant to be too high. You can't cross over that wall on your own, on your best days. The standard of God is so far beyond what you can even imagine. And when we get that, man, we need a savior. We need someone to fulfill our righteousness for us. But we can look at the standard, we can say, no, I can't achieve that, therefore I will move it out of my way. That's the, that's the very foundation of legalism, right? Hebrews 12, 24, it says, we have come to Jesus, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Check that out. The writer of Hebrews brings up this account. This is the first murder. This was the first human shedding of blood right here in Genesis chapter 4. And, he, and it says there in Genesis chapter 4 that it had a voice. He said to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out. It had a voice. And so it's interesting that the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews said, the blood of Christ, it, it, it speaks better things than that of Abel. Why does it speak better things? Because it's the answer. Blood has a voice. The martyrs that are killed for their faith, that blood has a voice. Those who have been killed, the innocent who have been killed, those babies who have been aborted, those baby, their blood has a voice. There's a person behind that blood that was taken out through hatred. Wars, cruelty, all those people have, have, their blood has a voice. And what is the voice saying? Do something. Something must be done. And that's why Jesus' blood speaks better that of Abel. See, Abel's blood spoke of condemnation. Jesus' blood speaks of no condemnation. It's the word there better is the Greek word kriton, which means stronger, or it's, or it's louder. And I love that. Because in our messy lives, and in our sin, my sin, the blood of Jesus Christ is louder than any voice, any voice of condemnation within your own self or even someone else condemning you. The blood of Jesus Christ is louder than any voice. And that encourages me. See, better because it was one sacrifice for all. He took away the sins of the world. We no longer look forward to the next sacrifice. It's all done. We look back to the final sacrifice when Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. Jesus' blood spoke louder. Jesus didn't, did not typify, typify 
the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. The entire previous sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. He's not a type of the atonement. He is the atonement. He's the one. He's the representative of the sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of all these of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. We read in Romans 5, 9, much more than having been, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And in case you forgot, we have sinned. We sin every day. Everybody sins. We have sinned against our spouse. We've sinned against our children. Children have sinned against their parents. Employees have sinned against their bosses. Bosses have sinned against their employees. Debtors against their lenders. There needs to be a sacrifice for you today. And that's Jesus Christ. His blood speaks to your condition. His blood speaks to your problems. His blood speaks to your weakness, to your struggles, and says forgiven. You know, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, when they would sacrifice the lamb, the high priest would offer a sacrifice, you know, sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and if God accepted the sacrifice, he would walk out and he'd say three times that all the people of Israel were gathered there outside the temple, and they're hoping that God accepts this. It was one sacrifice, once a year, the Day of Atonement, and, and he'd step out and he'd look at the, the multitude and he'd say three times, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. And that was God's pronouncement upon them. See, Jesus' blood speaks. It has a voice. And it's louder than every other voice. And it says to us, forgiven. There's power in the blood. It does not need your voice to increase it. It already has power. The blood of Christ speaks louder. Cain was a marked man who, like that first brother in the story, never thought beyond the severity of his punishment to the severity of his sin. He didn't realize that his brand was a blessing as well as a curse. It held in check the vengeance of his fellow uh, countrymen so that he wouldn't be killed. And God was granting Cain an opportunity to acknowledge his wrong, to plead for mercy, and to wipe out his reputation as a murderer. How tragic that he chose not to do that. How tragic he chose not to cry out to God. See, a bad rep reputation or a mistake of the past doesn't have to be permanent because of the gospel. Because Christ died for our sins, his forgiveness wipes the slate clean, and his power enables us to live a new life. If you have made a mess of your life, return to him. Receive the gospel. And so when that happens, verse 16, by this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. This is how we know love. We don't know how to love one another. It's not innate. We're not born with the ability to love the way we're created to love each other. So John says, this is how we know love, by looking at Jesus and then allowing the life of Jesus Christ to come to you and flow to those people around you in a tangible way, not in an ethereal way, but a tangible way. You know, it's one thing for me to get up here and say, oh, I really love you guys. 
You know, it's in theory, I love you, but to really love someone, it's tangible. And he brings up how we treat each other. If we have something to help someone else, they're not in the way. And if we can remove this person to get out of the way so I can be happier or have more, we see people as men and women created in the image of God, marred by sin. But oh, when you receive the gospel for you, it flows to others. We're in such appreciation. That is what it means to abide in Christ. And the same life that was in Jesus flows to us. There's all kinds of ways that we can do that when someone's in need. Not too long ago, there was a, I was here at the music store, and this guy was wanting some money, and so I started talking to him and sharing the Lord with him, and, and he's like, I'd get a job, but his boots were like, the, the soles were falling off of his boots, and, and he's telling me this, and there's a boot repair, we're standing right underneath a boot repair thing here, and I go, I'm going to get you some soles for, for your shoes, and then I want you to give your soul to Jesus Christ. And we got him some souls on there, and I prayed with them. But there's, there's unique ways that we just help people. Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice for, to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. When, they're, when, the, bre- when the brethren, <laughs> when we're loving each other, there's a sweet aroma. There's a sweetness. And we read those verses, 16 and 17, it speaks of of gospel-centered living. And gospel-centered living is laying down your life for the undeserving. Okay? That's sacrifice. Laying down your life for the undeserving, that's what Jesus did for us. People that aren't deserving of anything. See, we tend to judge people. Well, he's in that mess because he, you know, he made a bed for himself. And there's some truth to that. There's consequences to our mistakes. But what John is addressing is our hearts. Our hearts and gospel-centered living. Okay, quickly here. Lastly, the reality. The reality is we can know. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth. What John is saying is we can know. We can actually know where we're at this morning based upon how we relate to one another. We can actually know, we can be in touch with reality, with the gospel. And only you can take that inventory. I can't do it for you. I don't know your heart. Only you, and that's why it says in Corinthians that the Holy Spirit comes and it searches our hearts deep crying unto deep. And the Holy Spirit is committed, God in us, committed to helping us come into this place where we can know, and then if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we know. But if our heart condemns us, then we know that, God, I need to get in touch with the gospel. I need to see others through the lens of the gospel. I need to see myself through the lens of the gospel. I need to relate to you, God, through the lens of the gospel, and so we abide. Abide in him. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given us. See, the Holy Spirit, he's, he's given us his spirit to help us and to grow us and to help us abide in him. What is spiritual fruit? 
A lot of people get this wrong. They see fruit, like that ministry has got a lot of fruit, right? And they're usually thinking about money or numbers or they're packing their services out or their events out or, or the number of conversions. But really, when you study the Bible, that's not fruit. Those are results. But true spiritual fruit is love and holiness and humility and graciousness and doing good to one another. That's spiritual truth, spiritual fruit. We read in Matthew 18 that, remember, Jesus uh, was talking with Peter, and, and Peter's like, well, what if my brother, he does the same thing seven times in one day, and after every time he says, man, I'm really sorry I did that again. Another time, man, I'm really sorry. Now it's, now it's 12.30 p.m. He does it again. Man, I'm really sorry. Now it's, now it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Does the same thing again. Man, I'm really... And so Peter's going, would you stop, stop it already? And so Peter says, he's, he's trying to boast with Jesus. He's doing kind of a Cain thing, like, I've actually forgiven someone seven times for the same offense. And he was, he was wanting to be commended by Jesus. And Jesus said, you're missing the point. It's not the amount of time. It's that you can have a life where my life comes to you and through you, where you're perpetually loving people. You're perpetually forgiving people. You're perpetually walking in a way that, that the same grace I'm showing you, you're showing to other people. Seventy times seven. <laughs> Jesus said. And he wasn't saying 490 times. So here you are, 489 times. You know, the clock's ticking down. It's almost midnight. He does it again. Oh, you hit the, you hit the, uh, the threshold there, buddy. And, you know, that's not what Jesus was saying. He's speaking of the impossibility of loving each other. But, but when God fills us with his life and his love, what it looks like. See, it's impossible to hold a grudge and be mindful of the gospel. It's impossible to hold a grudge for another person and yet be mindful for yourself of that gospel. So here's the plan for you. No matter where you're at in life, Jesus died for you. It's God, he's God's eternal sacrifice. We don't get into this perfect plan of God by just being good. It's only by faith. And John is telling us that when we understand the sacrifice of Christ, we live out our lives as a sacrifice. Like, like Paul says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. And that was his joy. That is, that's the way to live. We're miserable when we're just trying to get people to do what we want to do. Or what we want. And true freedom is when you pour out your life for other people, especially the undeserving. And when we know his complete acceptance and forgiveness, we don't have to prove anything. We don't have to protect anything. We don't have to sure up everything because our lives are hidden in Christ and motivated by his grace. Why? Because the same, because we needed it. And God came to us, like it says in Romans, when we were at our weakest place. That's when God sent his only son to die for me. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for Jesus. This is how we know love. We would not have known love. This amazing love, we would not have known it unless Jesus came and he took his perfect character and he laid it down for me.
And now in Christ, I am, I am clothed, I am adorned with the perfection of Christ. Lord, I pray that, Lord, every one of us would enter into that realization today. And then, Lord, may your love for us flow freely through us to one another. And then we'll know. We'll know. And there's nothing like living life with that kind of confidence with you, a heart right with God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand up.